This episode of Greater Than Code is brought to you by Atlas Authority. Atlas Authority helps organizations manage and scale their Atlassian stack. With expertise in Jira, Confluence, Bitbucket, and other software development tools, Atlas Authority offers consulting, training, licensing, and managed hosting services. Visit atlasauthority.com gtc to find out more and learn why organizations trust Atlas Authority to implement, support, and maintain their critical Atlassian applications. Hi, and welcome to episode 136 of the Greater Than Code podcast. My name is Coraline Ada Emke. I will be one of the hosts today. Also with me is my dear friend, Jamie Hampton, aka Jamie Bash. Hi, Jamie. Hi, I'm really excited to be on the show for the first time in a little while. And I'm here with my friend, Rain Hendricks. Hi, Jamie, and hi, person mowing the lawn near Jamie. I am here with my friend, Sam Livingston Gray. It's one big happy lawn mowing family. Hello, everybody. How are you today? I feel empty inside and all my dreams are dead. Having a great day so far. Sweet. That's two of us. So that's... The, uh, the attentive listener will notice that we did not introduce a guest today. And in fact, we do not have a guest today. This is a special edition panelist only show. And we're going to talk about something that Sam had been tweeting about recently that got some attention. Sam, do you want to introduce us to the topic for today? Why, yes, I will. Thank you. Um, So last week, I gave a talk about refactoring at my local Ruby user group. Uh, It was actually a slightly edited version of a talk I gave back in 2013. Uh, It was about refactoring. And uh, somebody else watched a video of the talk online. Uh, There's a link of that in, in the show notes, by the way. And uh, they sent me a tweet saying, thanks for the talk on refactoring. Do you have any advice on getting team members to see that kind of refactoring as a necessary step to delivering value? And that really sort of got me thinking, like, how do you do this? And like, my first reaction was to quote the tweet that we often quote on this show, which is, I don't know how to convince you that you should care about other people. But that's glib and not very satisfying and doesn't make for a very good show. So what do you all think? This is something I'm actually facing in my work. We have a kind of a distributed monolith architecture. We have a centralized shared database and 33 applications that talk to various tables in that database. And we've been spinning up services and we have some Go services that don't talk to the database. And some of our infrastructure is kind of old. And uh, we're a six-year-old company, so we have six-year-old apps. And um, some of them are getting pretty creaky. So we've been talking a lot about how we can responsibly refactor those applications while resisting the urge that I think every developer feels sometimes of just like burn it all down and start over. And one of the things that's been really helpful for us is rather than thinking about refactoring targets as technical debt, we're talking about technical friction. I think friction makes it a little bit more actionable. It implies motion. and Really, the only parts of the code base that we care about refactoring are those parts of the code base that are getting in our way of delivering features. So that's like a lens that we look through to evaluate refactoring targets. And I think that for us, that's one way to get people more excited about it um, because it's like, hey, there's this controller that you're always working in and it's a source of constant bugs. What if we did some work on that controller to make your life easier in the future? 
I like the technical friction metaphor. I think Ward Cunningham came up with the technical debt metaphor as something that was palatable to the business people he was working with. And I suspect that Ward was able to express that in a way that captured, I think, more accurately what everybody else has sort of gone astray with, with regard to using technical debt. I don't like the metaphor of technical debt just because debt as a financial instrument is much more predictable as opposed to having something in the code base that could never come to bite you in the butt or it could take your whole business down. The scope of possible outcomes is a lot worse with with technical debt and a lot less predictable. I think the language that we use really matters too. That's That's a drum that I beat a lot in my talks about how language sort of constrains our thinking and constrains our problem solving abilities. So uh, I think debt as a metaphor like has its good qualities, but as you pointed out, Sam, it's an incomplete metaphor, and I think we should always be looking for newer and better metaphors to better express the challenges that we face. So yeah, I was happy to land on technical friction. You sort of touched on something else that I had uh, that I had put in my talk, um, which is that my friend Jim Shore. I had taken a class from him. Actually, the first time we met, I think, was uh, was in a class that I took at Portland State University on extreme programming. And I think it wasn't even during the class. It was my, maybe even just an aside. But he, he named something that I found really impactful to the way that I approached code, which is that he said when a lot of programmers encounter code that they didn't write, their first reaction is very often to throw up their hands and say, this is crap. I can't work with this. And I definitely heard myself in that uh, when he said it. I was like, oh, 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 that's me. Yeah. I got to change. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually experiencing the exact opposite thing almost at my job right now, which is that I have been at my company for like almost three years. So like I was at one point the only programmer and like everyone else who is on the team now has um, like joined since then. And so we just did a major refactor that I wasn't directly involved in. Um, it's still kind of ongoing. But before the refactor, almost all of the code in the entire code base, I had, if not written myself, at least like touched and understood. And now like there's been a huge overhaul of it with this refactor. And like there was a huge release branch that got merged in and then suddenly I was like oh my god I don't understand any of our code anymore because it was all rewritten by the other team and that's been like surprisingly hard to deal with emotionally interesting I mean I think that a lot of the things they've done in the refactor are like really great and like I think that there was a lot of you know technical debt or otherwise that was involved in some of the code that I had written. So it's not so much like, oh, I'm emotionally attached to my code and you took it out. Like, but it's more just like I'm so used to having this like pretty full understanding of like the entire architecture. And now like suddenly I kind of don't in the same way anymore. It almost feels like starting a new job and like looking at a new code base. It's so it's so like overstretching of the entire app, which is a wild feeling. I guess I'm not sure exactly what my thought about that is, but it's kind of funny to me that like we talk about, you know, oh, this old code that someone else wrote and now this shiny new code that I wrote and I'm kind of experiencing it in the reverse. (laughs) That's actually a really interesting point. I like it. I've certainly had an experience where I was working in some code where like littered throughout the code base were case statements that were literally switching on database record IDs. So like it was an application that 
was written for a company that had several different brands. And it was like case brand.id. When one, do this. When two, do that. And I looked at this and, and I was horrified. And I carefully spent a day or two going through and I came up with like a 400 line patch that took all of those things and replaced them with attributes on the brand model, which at least was a little bit easier to deal with, I thought. And then I, I, I put that patch into subversion and then it was reverted because it would have been too hard to apply that patch across the three or four other branches that had diverged from the one that I happened to be looking at. Oh, no. And this was super frustrating. And at the same time, I probably could have had a little bit more empathy for the person who was trying to maintain that stuff. That's not quite the position that you're in, Jamie, but it reminded me of that. Yeah. Yeah, I think that there's an interesting passing of empathy on both sides because, like, I was feeling a little bit at first, like, I wanted someone to hold my hand, I guess, through, like, well, what all did you do to, like, my code a little (laughs) bit? It's not all my code, but, like, I was feeling kind of like, yeah, well, if you changed it, like, you should teach me the new way. And there was kind of a discussion about, like, well, why don't you just, like, go in and look at it? (laughs) Just read the code. So there's, like, a little bit of friction there. But we're working it out. <laughs> of course, just read the code. It's obvious is what the original author would say if they were still around, right? So, yeah. There was something else there, Jamie. So the original question was about how you can advocate to your team members to start caring about refactoring as an as a important step. And this sort of skips past that, and I do want to get back to that. But what it sounds like you went through was this process of a refactor, or I almost want to say a redesign that took place over a long period of time in a separate branch. Do you know how that was managed? Like, did they keep merging back in from the production branch and periodically or keep rebasing or... Or how did that work? I actually don't really know. I, I feel weird about answering this question because I didn't work on this project and I don't really know how they did it. <laughs> I'm sorry. Maybe, go grab a coworker and drag him in? Maybe no. that's a problem though. <laughs> when you are making significant changes to a code base, like I'm of the opinion that a PR is like a code review of last resort when you're doing something big. Mm. I really prefer to have code walkthroughs where you have an engineer who wrote or at least understands the code walk through it. And I think that's what you're asking for, right, Jamie? Like, give me a walkthrough of lay out what the design principles are. Tell me what your philosophy for this redesign was. Tell me what the new mappings between our, our business and our business objects are. I don't think that's an unreasonable thing to ask for. And I think it's the responsibility of someone who's making a big change and what it sounds like a breaking change to the design, at least, that's kind of on them to bring the rest of their team along. You know, there's a value for the senior engineers talk about, you know, honor the code that came before you, that sort of thing, which isn't just honor the code, it's honor the effort of the, the people who wrote the code, right? And the circumstances and, they were in. Yeah, and, and all of the value that they put into that code that you may not understand now, but that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. And one of the things I think about when I refactor, we, we like to think that refactorings are simple. You just keep the, the behavior the way it is and you make the way it does that thing better. But there are a lot of edge cases. There are a lot of things where you look at the code and you go, is that a bug? Is it supposed to be that way? That's weird. And then you go talk to someone and they say, oh, that's because of X. And now you know whether it's a bug or not. And you need to know those things to know whether you're refactoring correctly. That's a great point. I just did a, a refactor of a really critical code path in the, the code base I'm working on where we have basically this handler mechanism that dispatches to some this object to some handler that handles it. 
And it was a giant case statement of like these 12 different handler classes. And each class, some of them, the thing for doing the handling was like 100 lines long. And I thought, how could I possibly, you know, refactor all of those handlers and come up with something that's correct when I don't understand any one of the handlers? And what I realized was I don't have to understand them. I can keep them the same and just change the way the, the dispatching works. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes the thing to do with old code is honor it and not change it because that's actually not the thing that's that's causing the problem for your team, which kind of gets to a point I wanted to make, which is that you do a refactoring to solve a problem, right? You don't just do it because it's fun, or at least I don't think you should. That kind of ties into one of the cultural values that we have at Stitch Fix as an engineering organization. We had an architect, and he was one of the original developers of most of our systems. And the question that he always raised was, what is the problem you're trying to solve? And that's such a simple question, but it was amazing to me how many times people would get caught up in that. They had this notion in their head of something they wanted to do, but it had become disconnected from the reality of like the problem that they were trying to solve. And I really mm-hmm. think if you can't clearly state the problem you're trying to solve, then you have no business writing code on it. We do our tests with user stories. So we don't do this 100% of the time, but we try to like, like when we have like cards in Pivotal or whatever we're using, we're using Pivotal right now, but like we try to use the format of like, as a blank, I want to blank. And so like a lot of them will be like users, like as a as a grower, because I work in agriculture, so like our customers are farmers, like as a grower, I want I want to be able to move my crop, blah, 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 like stuff for that. But like we can also do it for, you know, like developer happiness kind of stuff. Like as a developer on this project, I want to be able to go into this piece of code and understand like the documentation. I think that there can be a similar, like, I agree with you about the problems to solve. And I think there's like different people that have the problems. And sometimes those people are our customers and sometimes they're like ourselves. Yeah, that's such a healthy approach, I think, because I believe that we write code for people first. And if fellow developers are struggling with a piece of code or don't understand a particular subsystem, that's a problem. And I'd love that you address them as users with user stories. I think that's brilliant. And actually saying, quote, the problem is a bit reductive because usually there are a bunch of problems that are (laughs) all related to each other. (laughs) That's true. So Russell Ackoff said, a problem is an abstraction extracted from a mess by analysis. So the mess is all of these interlocking and interdependent problems. And when we focus on one thing, we call it the problem. It's because we've extracted it from this context. And I guess where I'm going with that is that if you're refactoring, you're now a part of the mess and you have to make your, make sure your problem, your solution to your problem doesn't have other interactions that you didn't understand or predict. Well, I think that comes into breaking down a problem into the smallest possible parts and it's okay for a problem to be multifaceted, but I think it's a dangerous position to put yourself in. If you say, I'm going to solve this entire nest of problems because then you end up unraveling the sweater and getting yourself potentially in over your head. Yeah, as somebody with ADHD, that is definitely a trap that I fall into is like, oh, I'm working on this thing. And oh, my God, what is that mess over there? And then I sort of start untangling that mess and like, oh, it leads to other things because code ugliness is fractal. (laughs) This is why I think that problem forming is a more important skill than problem solving. Mm, Yeah, I like it. 
But all of this uh, assumes that you can get your coworkers to go along with you, which was the original <laughs> question. So, so yeah. let me get back to that because there's a specific thing I wanted to mention, which is that status quo bias often prevents us from understanding or perceiving the costs of not changing. Mm-hmm. And so I think often when we're trying to convince the people who need to be convinced that we should do a refactoring, we do ourselves a disservice by talking about the costs and, and the value of the refactoring in a vacuum. I think what we ought to say instead is, you know, look, in in a month, the code can look like A and have these costs and benefits, or the code can look like B and have these costs and benefits. And what do we prefer? That just reminded me of one of my uh, favorite cognitive biases, which is the well-traveled road effect. It's a bias in which travelers will estimate the time taken to traverse routes differently depending on their familiarity with the route. So mm-hmm. if you know the mess, if you're comfortable with it, then you can navigate it very quickly because you know where to look. If you're new to it or if you're easily distracted for various reasons, then um, a certain bit of code can cost you a lot more than it costs somebody who's been working with it for a while. Yeah, I think that's a great point. In the book I'm co-authoring with Naomi Freeman, Compassionate Coder, we talk a lot about working with legacy code. But one of the other things that we address is what you can learn from the process of onboarding a new developer. Sam, to your point with the well-traveled road, we get used to the code being in a certain state. We're like, oh, yeah, that that part is like kind of complicated or that part's kind of quirky. But we kind of deal with it because that's the status quo. And when a new person comes in and they're confused about the code, maybe that's a sign that, hey, maybe it would be better for us if we took a look at that and thought about, like, does that still match our best practices? Does that still map to the business domain? I think uh, things that confuse other people can be a code smell, too. I think we've all seen, like, the new developer come in and say, I'm going to change all the things. All the things can be yeah. better. I don't understand why they're <laughs> like this. And it's I've easy to that, dismiss yeah. that, as, you know, oh, you summer child. But actually, that perspective is super valuable yeah. if you can integrate it. And there's the timing aspect to it, too, because in six months, that developer is also going to be on that well-traveled road where, oh, yeah, mm-hmm. that controller is just a mess. We try not to work in there. So you really have to kind of strike while the iron's hot and, like, document this area of the code is hard to understand. And I'm in favor of um, senior engineers keeping a shadow backlog. I know a lot of us who work for product companies or for service companies were very focused on delivering customer-facing features. So that's often what drives our roadmap for development. We're working with business partners who are asking for a feature to be delivered by a given date. But I think having a shadow backlog of things that you want to work on when you have time and then working with business partners to communicate why working on those things is important, what the value of them is is really good. But without that shadow backlog, if that opportunity presents itself, you're going to be faced with the question of what do I do next? And being paralyzed on that question is a terrible position to be in. I worry that having too long of a backlog would cause the same effect of being paralyzed. Well, it's got to be stack ranked, right? Yeah, it's basically like if you put a tick mark by everything, uh, every time it annoys you, then you pretty quickly prioritize. One thing that is kind of related to what Rain was talking about earlier about like respecting the code and like talking about new developers coming in is like an experience that I've had a lot is, um, you know, when we have new developers that come to me and ask me questions about like, well, why is this like this? 
And I don't think it's meant to be a loaded question, but it's kind of interesting because like sometimes the answer is like, oh, well, there's this very specific thing and like here was the error and here's how we got around it. Or like, you know, there was a specific customer that we had to do something for. Or sometimes it's like, you know, we ran out of time and we were in crunch. And sometimes the answer really is just like, I don't know, because we were stupid and we didn't think about it. And I mean, that's glib, but it's how I feel about it sometimes. But my like, <laughs> but that answer I mean, you. I try to be honest about it, but I guess like what I wonder is like when somebody new comes to me, like which of those answers do they want to hear? Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's why I, I try to not ask. they need to hear? Why is it like this? What I say is, hey, I think it could be like X. Is that possible? And then they have that's like a, a concrete way you know, thing they can give me feedback on rather than having to justify the existence of a thing. I used to be very stressed out about justifying the existence, especially when the answer was like, I don't know, because I did it three three years years ago. ago, We we weren't good. Yeah. (laughs) And like, I used to feel very self-conscious about that answer, but like, I wonder if that's like, if someone's coming to me asking, why is this like this? Because they want to change it. Like that's the answer they want to hear. They want to hear like, I don't know, because it was, it was dumb. They don't want to hear, oh, there's a very specific reason why it was like this and you can't change it. <laughs> right. So what I would do in that situation is I would try to get them to say that. I would say, why do you want to know? Is there something you want to change? That's great advice. I'm in a similar situation where I've been – I'm working on a code base that's about 10 years old at least. Uh, I was looking in the – the initial import into Git was in 2009. I've been working on this code base for about four years, and I've I've tackled a number of the large messes. I've actually been really fortunate to be able to spend a lot of time doing heads down, big refactors, and not not be expected to deliver a lot of uh, customer facing features. But that means that since I've dealt with some of the biggest messes, uh, I've actually had this experience now of somebody coming in and looking at uh, some search code that uh, that I introduced that is pretty confusing, but my reaction when I was first asked about it was, well, you should see what came before. <laughs> so that's my own status quo bias, I think. It's like, well, I, I fixed it and it's better, but it's not better enough. That's like the computer science version of like, you should see the other guy. <laughs> <laughs> nice. yeah, I, I, it's interesting how existing designs constrain us even when we don't want to be constrained, right? Like maybe... You know, the reason you didn't come up with the thing that they did is because you were basing your design on what you thought was possible, given the existing design, and then they were doing the same thing. Yeah, I like it. So talking about how do we convince people to refactor, maybe the place to start is by examining the people who are invested in the code and in what the code does, and you know where they often fall in and what arguments they often make, what positions they often take when you discuss refactoring. So team leaders, product owners, and so on. I agree. I was going to make a similar point about like, it really kind of, it's a hard question to answer because it really depends on why there is resistance to refactor. And I feel like there's a number of reasons that resistance could exist. I think that's kind of what you were saying. Yeah. I found that the success of like being able to do the refactoring mostly depends on the attitudes of the people who have power over that decision. And that, those people may not be engineers. That was like the point I was trying to make with mm-hmm. justifying to business partners, your stakeholders, because those people may not may not understand the value. And I think that's where those metaphors come in really handy. If they understand the concept of technical debt, if they if you can convince them of the, uh, if you can give them an understanding of technical friction, if you can say, mm-hmm. look, 
we'd had 12 bugs over the past year in this part of the code. And that part of the code is going to continue to be a source of, the, of bugs because it's complicated. We need to do something about it. So let's say that it's the product owner and the product owner wants us to ship features and the product owner doesn't want us to, quote, waste time refactoring when we could be shipping, right? Yeah. Uh, that's an, that's maybe a bit of a of a um, straw man, but it's a thing I've literally heard. I have heard this as well. I think that's natural and normal because mm-hmm. the problem they're trying to solve is delivering value to the customer and the problem you're trying to solve is delivering value to other developers, and to yourself. That's why I like Jamie's approach so much about, you know, having user stories that have developers as actors. I'm not sure that's necessarily true, though, because the way that you framed it just now is like there's a conflict between delivering value to customers and delivering value to developers. And I think one of the main problems with technical friction is that it slows down your ability to deliver to customers yeah, or users. That's- not and that's, users. And that's a tool you can use when you're talking to stakeholders about why that change is necessary. And that's something they can yeah. definitely understand. You can point to bug frequency. You can point to, look, it took us two sprints to implement this relatively simple feature because that code is very difficult. And it's going to continue to cost us more and more and more time as we move forward, making changes to this part of the code base. We really need to make that investment now. I think if you frame it in terms of an investment, that's also a metaphor that maybe non-technical stakeholders can wrap their heads around. So I'm a constructivist. So when I look at this situation, what I see is an opportunity to construct a new understanding between me and the product owner, where we both have different views of the problem and both of our views are valid. And if we can construct a shared understanding by discussing, well, I think that the refactoring would benefit us and solve your problem by doing X and so on, then I think you can, rather than just having this be a conflict, you can you can turn it into an opportunity. So a thing I like about this and that I would like about Jamie's approach both together is that being forced to go back and think about term about things in terms of user value does help keep you focused on what the problem is that you're actually trying to solve and maybe helps keep you a little bit more focused. I mean, that's one thing that I've always liked about cucumber tests is that regardless of whether or not they're executable, they get me thinking at that bigger level of, again about like, wait, what am I actually trying to do here? And yeah. maybe there's an easier way to it also forces me to be more explicit about understanding the problem that I'm trying to solve and relating the problem I'm trying to solve back to our shared goals as a team. So I'm not the problem I'm trying to solve is actually not, oh, this code sucks. The problem I'm actually trying to solve is I want to do stuff with this code. I want to change it in a way that benefits the team, and it's difficult now and would be easier later. And I think that the refactoring, the cost of the refactoring would be paid off by all of the future development of this thing being easier. Like that's the assumption that I have and the reason why I want to do the refactoring. And if I can just be explicit about that and make those make those assumptions, you know, turn those assumptions that I have into a shared understanding, I think that often the once you can formulate the mess, the mess often just dissolves. And I think that kind of turns Sam's question on its head. Because there will be situations where a refactoring is not worthwhile. If it's not related to a problem that you're having, if you just yes. think, well, this code is ugly, I don't like it, I wouldn't have written it this way, that's not a good justification for doing a refactoring. That's being a cowboy. 
I've had situations where I've been really excited to do a refactoring and I've talked to the team leader, I've talked to the product owner, and we've discussed why I think it's a good idea and why I think it benefits the team. And it turns out I was wrong, or it turns out that I didn't understand that this actually wasn't as much of a priority, or actually we're going to be moving on to work on this thing soon or so on. And actually the refactoring wouldn't have given the team the value I thought it would have. Oh my gosh. I want to, I want to pitch this tool that one of my coworkers wrote. His name is Dan Meyer and he has a, uh, a Ruby gem called cover band. You know how, when you use like simple cov and it shows you how your tests have exercised your code and it gives you that like source code view and it says the lines are highlighted that have been tested. It actually like keeps a tally of code path executions. So you can go and you can browse your code paths and say, Oh my God, this one was hit 20,000 times over the past 24 hours. Maybe that's something that we would really want to focus on versus, wow, this code path rarely ever gets executed. Let's just leave it the hell alone. Or delete it. Or delete it. Not yeah. only that, but it'll tell you, hey, this is a critical code path. And if yeah. we're going to touch it, we need to do it with the most delicate of gloves. Exactly. It's such a cool tool, and we've been integrating it into a lot of our apps at Stitch Fix. My job is to do service integrations and service extractions. And the last thing we want to do is spend a lot of time refactoring code to use a service when it's not even part of a of an execution path. That's fascinating. My usual approach for using a tool like CoverBand, which is awesome, is, like I said, is to see if if something is even still used and I can delete it. But yeah. I like your your focus as well. So we've been talking about sort of the costs and the benefits of refactoring, but we haven't talked much about the risks. So the whole goal of refactoring is to not change the behavior of a thing, but to change its shape, right? Yeah. But that's not foolproof. (laughs) But Rain, there are always tests that tell you whether you've changed the behavior of the code. Yeah, but tests can't be complete. I will (laughs) refer you to Rice's theorem. Uh, I was expecting you to challenge my assumption that there are always tests at all. (laughs) Right, also true. But even even when you think that code is tested, even when you have good coverage, it's always possible for there to be things that aren't covered that actually happen in the real world. And there's no real way for you to know even even with coverage tools. Oh, there's a great line from Travelers that I'm going to borrow here, which is, no plan survives contact with the past. Nice. (laughs) I like that more than the enemy. Although, arguably, the past is... Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. We're talking about this a little bit with our refactor, which again was like, it had more to it than that. But someone was like, you know, oh, well, if there are bugs like in the new version, blah, blah. And we're like, no, stop. Like, there will be bugs. Yeah. There's always going to be bugs. There's bugs in the old version. There's bugs in the new version. Like, bugs are in code, and that's just part of writing code. So let's all get that, like, straight. (laughs) (laughs) That reminds me of the thing I was. That reminds me of a thing I was going to say a couple minutes ago, which is that another smart person that I worked with, John Wilger, and by the way, Dan Meyer and John Wilger, uh, we all work together and Rain as well at Living Social. So uh, some of the things that I'm thinking about all happened there. But one of the things that John Wilger, Wilger taught me is that, and it will make it easier for us to do X in the future, is much less convincing than you probably think it is, because you may not ever want to do X in the future. By the time you get there, your plans may change. The world might end. Mm-hmm. So a thing I learned from Akoff, again, he has a tool called Idealized Design, which is a way to figure out how to make your business not collapse. But what he does is he says, okay, imagine that the system that we are in was destroyed last night. It's all gone. All of our code is gone. 
all of our servers are gone. The team is gone. Everything is gone. And we're going to rebuild from scratch. And we can do anything we want as long as we follow three rules. One, it has to be technically viable, no science fiction. Two, it has to be organizationally viable. It can't break any laws. It can't be something that if we ran like this for six months, we'd cease to exist. And three, it has to be a system that's capable of improvement over time. So what I think about in these situations is, and oh, by the way, so the goal of figuring out what the system would be is not what you would do a year, five years in the future. It's what would the system be like today to solve the mess we're in today? Uh, Because we know about today, but we don't know about six months from today. So what I think about is, Sam, instead of solving the problems of the future, how should the code be today to solve the problems of today? And taking that question back into the past, uh, that often helps me build some empathy for the code and its original authors is because I just assume that the code is the way that it was because it solved the problem that that they had then. The way I often frame it is if this code worked this way today, the thing we're building now, we would get done faster and it would be less buggy and so on. I think uh, in the uh, charter document I wrote for the Engineering Friction Working Group that I lead at Citrix, we outlined three different kinds of technical debt. One is intentional debt. You have a deadline. You have a massive strategic initiative. You don't have time to do things in an optimal way, but it's important to document them so that in future you can go back and and clean things up. Then there's evolutionary debt, which is more of what you two were just describing, where a design that worked in the past is increasingly not appropriate for the problems that you are having now. And then finally, there's bit rot, which I think also has to be addressed, that the quality of of code tends toward entropy. The more people who work on a code base, the less well it adheres to its original design. And I think it's really important to think about what kind of refactor you want to do based on the shape of that code, where it lies in that domain of technical debt. Yeah, that's really interesting, especially because only one of those is intentional. The other two are systemic trends. Mm -hmm. And the idea that code tends toward entropy is especially fascinating to me. One of the things that refactoring is, is a firebreak against that, right? Yeah, that's true. You know, we say we've seen the direction this code is going in and we want to we want to get back to a, a state uh, that's different, that prepares us more for changes in the future. Yeah. Like I said, that shapes the kind of refactoring you want to do and the motivation. And there are tools for helping you identify areas where there's a lot of bit rot. You can use uh, a tool called churn, which will literally count the number of times that a particular line of code or a particular class has been modified through its Git history. Sure. So, really useful at the class or file level. Yeah. How does categorizing technical debt help you approach refactoring? Ooh. It gives you a goal in mind. Like if it's intentional debt, then you're like, we have to prioritize this because we didn't have time in the moment to get it right. And we know or we sense that if we leave this code alone, it's going to cause problems down the road. I think there's a Is sense, there a sense of timeliness, like- timeliness and urgency. Is there a sense that like you made a promise to yourself when you assumed the technical debt and now you have to you have to fulfill the promise? I think that's exactly you know? right. Yeah. We said we'd pay this off and if we don't then we're lying to ourselves. Yeah. Do you have exactly. a trigger condition for intentional debt? Like this is this way because right now we don't have to solve this problem but when we get to, you know, 10x the load that we have now it's going to fall down. I think that's a very healthy way to approach it. 
So how do you distinguish, like, how do you know that something is intentional debt? Like, was there a document that was produced at the time that that choice was made? You have to document it. You have to have at least a shadow backlog. You have to have documentation of some kind, because otherwise it's going to slip out of your mind. It's going to be something that sort of nags you in the background every now and then, and you're never going to get to it. I really believe if things aren't written down, they're going to be lost, especially in a larger company. Speaking of documentation, have, have any of you used um, architecture decision records or any kind of decision records? Yeah. And if so, did they help you when you go back to look at why a thing is the way it is today? I actually introduced those to Stitchfix. It was one of the first contributions to the engineering culture that I made. And uh, we have a process for considering them. We start with a Google Doc, and then we invite people to comment on a Google Doc that allows us to iterate quickly. And then we make a PR with a document to our Inge wiki. And then we have a meeting where engineers get together. It's called Forward the Foundation. It's a meeting that I run now where interested engineers get together and we spend 15 minutes time boxed to discuss the details of the ADR in an attempt to drive toward consensus. Consensus is not necessary, but if you don't get consensus, that's a sign that, hey, maybe this needs more work. And then after that 15-minute time box, we take a pulse. We actually use a poll in Slack in our back channel to say, yes, adopt it. No, needs more discussion. And uh, we do that to get everyone on board and also to socialize the decisions that we're making. If we're just writing ADRs in a vacuum, then they're not really affecting how anyone else does their work, right? Interesting. My first programming job ever was like, I found this job on like Craigslist. It was just like tiny. It wasn't even a startup. It was like these owners and me and I was the only developer. Um, it wasn't Greenfield there. It was like kind of a code base, but I worked there for like a year and a half. And so I was in this kind of unique position where like every bad decision that had been made was like past me, like always. Like there was no point in doing like a get blame to see whose fault like this bad code was because it was always me. And it was bad because it was my first job and I was learning Ruby like as I was doing it. And so and now I'm in this position where um, I'm like the oldest, longest running developer at my company. And so there often is like bad code that we can look back on. And like, it's kind of a joke because like, I'm aware of it. And they'd be like, Jamie, what were you thinking? And I'm like, I don't know. I was thinking that I was a new developer then and I didn't know what I was doing. Um, but I think that like, there's a skill to being able to admit that. And it can be tough because it's kind of humbling. And so I'm wondering about like, if you're in a situation with where you can admit that, then it's one thing. But if you're in a situation where you yourself or maybe someone else like can't admit like there's some code that has problems that they wrote, and there's like, egos getting in the way that might be like, a different aspect of this that we could discuss i would challenge you on one thing jamie you said bad code and i try really hard to keep value judgments out of code because really bad code is going to put you on the defensive right it's going to put it would put anyone on the defensive and it's not really descriptive and it doesn't really lead to action so you can say code that's too slow code that doesn't follow canonical ruby style you can talk about code that is error prone but I don't think a value judgment helps you or will motivate you or will, will lead to that humility and that you know being humble about what you wrote in the past because a value judgment is necessarily going to bring in this emotional component, which isn't really helpful when you're looking at code, I don't think. 
I think that's really valuable and I totally agree. And I would clarify that I wouldn't call, I, I probably wouldn't use the phrase bad code. The only reason I used it is because I was talking about my own code. So I feel like I have that right. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I call my own code bad all the time. And the thing I'm trying to stop doing is telling other people that my code is bad. Hmm. There's a question that I use that may help you shift out of that, um, which is, what does this code have to teach me? Mm-hmm. Ooh, I like that. When I think about a, making a value judgment, what I think is that there are criteria that I'm using either implicitly or explicitly to form this value judgment. And by giving people the value judgment and not the criteria, I'm sharing the least interesting and useful thing yeah. and hiding all of the useful things. You can't act on some like the reaction to this is bad is, oh, I guess we should get rid of it. And that's not always the best way forward. Because sometimes it's a you know a visceral, effective reaction. It just feels bad to me, right? But if I take the time to try to process that, I can come up with better feedback. Even saying it feels bad to me or it makes me feel bad is better than saying it is bad. Mm-hmm. That's a great point. A thing I try to think about is like, it stresses me out. Like, it stresses me out to look at this code. Yeah. Right. And that's I valid. look at this code and go, ugh. And then I have to unpack what uh, means in English. Yeah. Because, yeah. you know, this gets into psychology and cognitive systems a little bit. But those feelings are they're coming from a part of our brain that's still processing information, but on a, on a different level. Yeah. I think when you acknowledge you're having an emotional reaction to something, it's really important from an emotional intelligence perspective. And I cover this in my programming empathy talk. Identify what triggered it and decide what you're going to do with it. The feeling is valid. Mm-hmm. The feeling is something and you're identify experiencing. the feeling itself. Yeah, of course. Yeah, identify the feeling. Well, what am I feeling? Something right that now? I have a lot of skill in, yeah. so I, I yeah. need to point it out. Sorry for the crosstalk, but no, that's that's perfectly valid, and that's uh, that's a great point to make. But we have a decision point. Like we can decide, I'm going to walk away from it. We can decide, I'm going to burn it down. We can decide, I'm going to work with someone else to see how it can be improved. Uh, we can decide, it doesn't matter. I'm trying so hard not to name drop someone right now, <laughs> but the <laughs> feelings are for ourselves and we get to decide how we share them with others. Mm. Is it Virginia Satir? It could be. <laughs> no comment. It could, it could always be Virginia Satir. So our, our reactions that we have are valid, but then we get to decide what we do with them. Exactly. I, I got mean. you to name drop Virginia Satir. Now I name drop <laughs> Virginia Satir. <laughs> <laughs> stop saying it oh no i said it so we talked about uh how to convince somebody who is a product owner that you aren't necessarily wasting time refactoring but the other person that you often have to convince to care about refactoring is a coworker. And whether or not that coworker is the person who wrote the original code that you're looking at, you still have to have a conversation with them about where you're going to go with it and whether it's worth the effort to clean it up or what. And I've seen people come down on a lot of different sides of this. And I'm curious where you all have had experience with trying to, to make this argument. I think having the discussion around it is valuable sure. because you may be acting viscerally. You may be reacting viscerally to looking at a piece of code. And it can really be a good thing for you to get like a second opinion on whether it's even valuable. If it's valuable from like a, a rational perspective as opposed to just the emotional trigger you get from looking at the code. 
Yeah, I, I keep coming back to this idea that there are many sides and that the truth is somewhere in between often. And I have an idea and they have an idea. And if we combine them, we'll probably get closer to reality. So my idea is this could be better. And their idea is this was perfectly fine. Or maybe that's not their idea. Like maybe their idea is, yeah, it could be better, but we should work on this other thing instead. Okay. That's where, uh, that's where the team dynamics really come to play. I think that, uh, and also the life cycle of where the company is too. If you're in a company where it's maybe, maybe early stages and as an engineer on a team of five, you have a lot of autonomy. Um, that's very different from a mature company with working software that's delivering value that you want to change, but it isn't necessarily tied to any value beyond your own sense of satisfaction with having written better code. That's a great point because I was thinking of almost the opposite, which is like when I was kind of talking earlier about like there are different reasons that one might be resistant to refactor. And I think one of those reasons might like particularly at a small company, since that's where like all of my experience is, is like we literally don't have time or enough people to do that. Like we literally just can't like maybe Mm -hmm. we all agree that it's a good idea, but like we're just too understaffed and we can't. One of the things in terms of like the full life cycle of the code and the system that I think is really important that we kind of haven't touched on yet. We talked about like, how do you know what to change things into if you can't know the future is that, you know, it's a cliche, but it's very true. The only constant is change. If our code base isn't changing is because our company is no longer in existence. Right. Um, and Sandy Metz talks a lot about you don't refactor code to change it to the way it ought to be in the future. You refactor code and you write code so that it can be changed to make it more changeable. And that's a value that's really hard to describe concretely. The resilience community talks about adaptive capacity, which is our capacity to adapt to unforeseen futures and about being poised to adapt. And when I think about refactoring, what I often think about is how can we make our code more poised to adapt to changes in the future? Like we often know what code is likely to change because it's often yesterday's weather. The code that changes tomorrow will probably be the code that changed yesterday, right? And so we can come up with some ideas about what code is likely to change and then use that to drive our decisions about where we focus our refactorings. I like that idea of adaptive capacity. I think that's uh, that's really good. And that also ties into what we talked about with intentional debt, where maybe you set criteria for when the proper time to go back and refactor is based on you know how many transactions per second can this code handle or mm-hmm. other factors that are measurable. Because when you incur that technical debt intentionally, you're also intentionally underwriting a risk, right? And the risk is that you're intentionally making the code harder to change in the future. And the risk you're underwriting is you're going to need to change it real fast. Yeah. Or under intense pressure. Mm -hmm. You didn't predict, but suddenly this is the most important thing for the company. It has to be done yesterday. And if only you would spend the time to refactor it. Yeah, that was that was the thing that I've that I learned, especially uh, at one particular job where they had, you know, this company had gone through their hockey stick growth phase. Then I I came in later and I made the mistake of sharing one of those. This is crap jokes that I like to make when I know that code is mine. And I made the mistake of essentially saying that about somebody else's code. Uh, And the political implications of that were really not good. Yeah. (laughs) And what I found, though, in the aftermath of that was that I really had to clarify, no, I I have to say that I have to respect the way that this code is, because if you hadn't done it like that, I would not be here to, to criticize it. Right. You wouldn't have gone through that hockey stick phase if you hadn't written the code this way. And you wouldn't have made so much money that you could afford to hire somebody who specializes in cleaning that stuff up. 
Yeah. I love that uh, so much. One of the things I notice when I do code review is that some code is easier to review than others because it's more revealing of its intention and so on. Yeah. And I find that code that is easy to review, it's easy to give feedback on, is also easy to change because it's easy to give a code review. You have to understand what the code is doing. And in order to change the code, you have to understand what code is doing. So those are correlated, aren't they? Yeah. And and so when I see code and I'm reviewing code and I go, well, I don't really have a lot to say about this. Is it because it's perfect or is it because I don't understand it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that ties into what I was saying earlier about significant changes should trigger a code walkthrough as opposed to just a code review. If the very first time you're mm-hmm. seeing code is in a PR, you know, there's that old joke that a five-line code change will get five comments and a 5,000 line code change will get five comments. That's a real factor. And I think we're doing a disservice to our coworkers if the first time they're hearing about something or even thinking about a new design is in a PR. Yeah. Let me make a maybe contentious argument. If I read code and I say, wow, there are 10 obvious ways that you could change this to make it better. That's a sign that the code is good and not a sign that the code is bad. If the code was bad, what I would say instead is, wow, this doesn't feel good, but I don't know what I would do about it. And it's not that the code is good or bad. It's it's the, the code is more or less understandable to you. Yeah. yeah, Bad in terms of my end goal of changeability, right? Sure. It's amazing to me, as an aside, how I think the four of us in general demonstrate a lot of empathy toward other developers, maybe a little less kindness towards ourselves, but almost all <laughs> yeah. of us have called code bad or shitty over the course of this podcast. That's really how we're wired to respond to things is very viscerally. And um, I think we have a lot of habits that we should all work on changing with regard to those value judgments. It's interesting that I have to be really intentional or I fall into those habits. Yeah. And it's much easier for me to be intentional when I'm being considerate of, you know, the feelings and the emotional state of someone else. Yeah. We don't have a tendency to be very kind to ourselves. I follow that all the time. Yeah. I find it uh, sometimes very uh, informative to look at an interaction that I've had with myself and ask if I would say that thing to somebody else. Yeah. Or if I see an interaction between two people or like the way that I sometimes treat members of my own family, I look at that and I think, well, would I treat a coworker that way? And the answer is often no. So, so yeah, that. Yeah. This has turned into a therapy session, and I'm here for it. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, my therapist did point this out to me when I was being self-critical. She was like, would you say that to a friend? So that's absolutely a tool I learned from therapy. Yeah, absolutely. I've said this on the show before, but I love when people start a story with like, oh, like in therapy or my therapist said, like it like piques my interest. And I feel like my ears just like perk up and listen because I'm like, oh, free therapy. (laughs) This is going to be good. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Free therapy. That's our episode title. <laughs> that's honestly like what being that's our new show, show is for me. I'm not <laughs> yeah. even joking. Same. It's not free. You have to pledge to us on Patreon. Oh, it's, <laughs> oh, it, oh it has a cost. <laughs> <laughs> but for real, you should pledge to us on Patreon. And then you can join our cool Slack community and get more therapy. How would I go about just... doing that, Jamie? Oh, you can go to patreon.com slash greater than code and you can pledge at any level, even a dollar, and then you can be on our Slack. And are guests from the show in the Slack community too? They are. All of them are actually. Wow. What an opportunity to learn and grow and share what we've learned from our collective Do you you have to pledge like $100? 
now you could pledge even one dollar. And if your circumstances change, do you have to keep pledging the same amount that you started with? Nope. You can change it. That's amazing. Wow, this sounds amazing. Well, this has been a lot of fun. And um, I've definitely learned some things. I'm going to go and Google adaptive capacity and see if I can bring that back to my team. So thank you for that, Rain. And yeah. Sam, thank you for for the topic. It's I think it's really interesting when something starts as a thought and we put it on Twitter and we get discussion and we don't often have a chance to really dig in. I don't think anyone would welcome a Twitter thread that said everything we said in the show today. Oh, God, no. <laughs> Almost as if Twitter isn't the best platform for long, nuanced conversations. Really? Who knew? Hmm. I know. Way, I find out Hot more take. about that. By the way, um, Adaptive Capacity is also the name of John Alspaugh's uh, consulting company. He was a former guest, and I've learned a lot about uh, resilience from him. Nice. Which I guess brings me to my reflection, which is that uh, I think a lot about whether things are viable in terms of can they continue to exist in a changing environment. The goal of resilience is viability, right? The goal of resilience is to keep the thing existing by being resilient, by doing things that make you more resilient. And when I think about refactoring, I think about it as being a part of resilience or viability. I think if we can identify, Jamie, you were talking about like how much runway do we have with this query that we're doing and things like that. If we can identify these threats to the viability of, of our code base of the systems and we can address them through refactoring, then we give the entire system a better chance of continuing to exist. And I think that is a really big value of reliability and of refactoring. And if we can find some way to share that understanding effectively, I think, I've found that it helps to convince people to do refactorings. If we can say, hey, you know, we've got about six months until this thing stops to work if things go the way they're going now. And we can get out in front of that by doing this, by refactoring this or by changing this other system. Let's do that. So I have kind of a meta reflection, which is that this started because I gave a 35, 40 minute talk about refactoring. And then somebody asked a question that fit in a single tweet. And now we have had a call that is at least twice as long as the original talk that I gave and said absolutely nothing about the actual technical skills of refactoring. And that really, to me, brings it back to the whole reason we do this show, which is that once you get past a certain point, the technical skills are not your your limiting factor. It's about dealing with people and trying to work effectively with and for them. So I'm glad that we're all here. So in the um, resilience community, they, they often say that an incident is an encoded message about your system. And I find a lot of encoded messages all over the place. You know, a tweet turned into an hour-long conversation because that tweet was an encoded message that contained all of, all, you know, all of the seeds necessary to have this conversation. Nice. Well, thank you. I was really looking forward to having this conversation with all of you, and it was even better than I could have hoped. I learned a lot of wonderful stuff, and uh, it's so great to have such good friends to talk about interesting things with. And listeners, I hope some of that comes across to you and that you uh, feel like joining us and joining the conversation. Either way, we'll be back at you next week. 